You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. In Scripture, there are many, many different examples of people being patient, isn't there? So I'm not sure what's done in Union Road Sunday School this morning, but in La Comfort Sunday School, the boys and girls were learning about King Saul and King David, or he wasn't quite King David, sure he wasn't. He had to wait patiently until he could become a, the, the king on the throne, as it were. And well, in Scripture, of Abraham and Sarah, they had to wait and wait for a child. Joseph had to wait and wait and get out of prison. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we met with Simeon and Anna, and they were told that they would meet the Messiah, but we know that they were really old. They had to wait and wait and wait. And well, the, the Bible's full of people having to be patient. But Scripture is also f- so full, so many examples of God being patient. God is so patient. In, uh, in the Psalms and uh, in Deuteronomy, it's God is merciful and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or in Psalm 118, that idea of enduring love that will never run out. And well, in this uh, parable that Jesus uh, he speaks, he's telling us that God patiently tells us to build our lives on Jesus. God is patiently telling us to build our lives on Jesus. That was the case for Israel over and over and over and over again. From the Old Testament to trust in the Messiah, the New Testament and to where we are today, to trust in the Messiah, but to trust in Jesus as we know who it is. God patiently tells us to build our lives on Jesus. And well, what's happening as Jesus is speaking this? Well, Jesus is about to die in a few days' time. Jesus has entered Jerusalem triumphantly. Again, echoes of Psalm 118 and the triumphal entry. You can read about that later. And this is where we're at. We're in the temple courts. So if you just cast your eye, I hope you're following along with me in Luke chapter 20. But in chapter 19, Jesus at the temple, do you remember he says, you've made my house a den of robbers, and he chases everybody out. And now the courtyard's empty. And Jesus is coming there day after day after day to teach. And as he teaches in verse 48, or yeah, the people hung on Jesus' every word. As Jesus is leading up to his death, the people are listening to every word. And the chief priests, the religious leaders, they're looking at that. And they can see that Jesus has authority in his teaching. And we were introduced to that in the very start of Luke's gospel as well, that Jesus taught with such authority. And that is why they asked the question to Jesus, what authority are you doing these things with? But Jesus counters them with another question, and they have a little conversation. And they're like so many people that decide just to go in the middle and do nothing. You know, is John from heaven, or is just a man? Is he just making it all up? And they say, oh, we don't know. So many people do that, not just with John the Baptist, but with God himself. Is God the one who is transcendent and ruling over all things, or is he made up? And people just go, yeah, somewhere in the middle, just do nothing. Jesus warns us and warns the, the chief priests not to do nothing, because God patiently tells us over and over again to build our lives on Jesus. So this parable, it's, it's quite simple and it's very clear, and it's one of the very few parables that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But let's look at three characters. Well, three characters are going to come up on the screen, okay? And the people would have recognized this. So in Isaiah chapter 5, that we looked at probably a month ago now in the evening, God says, Israel's my vineyard. And so the people's mindset is, Israel's a vineyard, that's the picture. And well, God is the owner of that vineyard. So immediately the people know that Jesus is talking about a vineyard and an owner. 
Jesus is talking about God, okay? Yeah, the people know that and the people get that. And then well, who do we have in the story? We have tenants. And the tenants are the pictures of the religious leaders, perhaps, or maybe even the people of Israel themselves. But because it's directed towards the chief priests, it's probably the religious leaders. Who else is in the story? Well, I haven't the most. We probably should have the servants. Who are they? They're going to be God's prophets, aren't they? They're going to the, the tenants, the religious leaders, and they're going to be God's prophets. And then the son is obviously going to be Jesus. Really, this parable is a summary of Israel's history in many ways as well. But let's, let's look at the, 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 the parable together. The first thing is this. Notice the owner's patience. The owner's patience. And it's unbelievably patient, isn't it? Because God has planted the vineyard Israel. He brought them out of Egypt, planted them, and he nurses Israel. He gives them blessing. All good things are, are from the Lord. And while well, he gives Israel all good things, God gives us even all good things. All good things still come from him. God has given us all this goodness so that we would worship him. And as God sends these servants, he does so that he would collect the fruit. So I think John 15, about being fruitful in the vine, God is sending his tenants to, to collect fruit. And when as the owner sends his servants to collect what's his, what's rightly his, what do the tenants do? They're like, nah. <laughs> they, well, the first servant comes, they beat him and send him away empty-handed. But God is patient. The owner is patient. And we see God's patience over and over again because the owner keeps sending messengers. Here, in this example, there's only three messengers before it gets to the sun. But in the Old Testament, there's prophet after prophet after prophet, isn't there? And as the, the owner sends messengers, do you notice how they treat the messengers gets worse and worse and worse? So the first servant is beaten and sent away. So he's got a bloody nose and sent away. The next one is beaten and treated shamefully, so probably stripped and sent away. The third one is wounded and left to rot. No, wounded, not, not, not sent away, but threw them out, threw them into ditch. It gets worse and worse and worse. But time and time again, God sends his servants to the people, and what do they say? They say, no, no, no. Time and time again, Sunday by Sunday, we hear God's word sent out, and some people here today are saying, no, no, no. Thankfully, I don't have a bloody nose from you. But in a sense, you're doing it to God's servants, God's word. You're saying no to him. Every time God sends out a prophet to Israel, the people might turn for a little bit. For the majority, they don't even bother. And God repeatedly shows to us, repeatedly shows to Israel his incredible patience. Because his patience is his repeated mercy. It's God's repeated mercy. Because looking at the story, you might think the owner's fearless here. You know, if, if a servant is left wounded, you would, surely you wouldn't bother going back again. It might seem foolish, but it's not foolish. It's just God's repeated mercy, playing with them to, to give them what praise that he deserves. It's God's forbearance with sinners. God is showing mercy over and over and over again. Jesus, in the context but bit like today, you know, you talk about debt collectors, perhaps in some communities. There were debt collectors in Israel back here. If owners were owed money, they would have sent some men, we'll say, you know, cracking the knuckles at the door, maybe not knuckle dusters, but they would have went to homes and would have collected the debt. 
And maybe that's people listen when you've anticipated this owner having had servants beaten to gather up a group of men and to go and to collect the debt. That is not what God does, is it? God just continually, the owner sends his servants. He's just showing mercy after mercy after mercy. So this, this heavenly father is going to eventually send the son. And we'll come to the son later. But don't be like the people in the story. Don't be saying no, no, no to God's word. Don't be saying no, no, no to the servants. Because although the owner is patient, God is patient. There's also hey, going to be consequences for them saying no, no, no. Jesus is saying to the chief priests, the ones that are listening to him, you look back at before pre-exile and you laugh at the chief priests and say how bad they were. You're no different. Because you too are rejecting the Messiah. And this is what you are. And what do we see? We have the owner's patience and then we have the people's refusal. The people's refusal. That idea of just saying no, no, no. And the, the, the picture is not some sort of tax man coming to collect debt. It's God sending people to follow him, to give what he deserves. And will God's people constantly reject God's messengers? And will they reject each messenger? The people refuse each messenger. God's people, whenever they got out of the wilderness, after God rescued them, God gave them the first commandment, which is what? Have no other gods before me. God calls his people from that moment uh, and before that, but ants. After that, the whole nation of Israel, time and time again, it's got one simple message. It's basically saying, have no other gods before me. Trust in Yahweh. Believe in the Lord. Trust in this Messiah to come. And the prophets are sent again and again and again. And it's back to that basic premise to trust. And the disobedience got so bad that they went to exile. They were able to come back, but it didn't last for long. They continue to reject, reject, reject. They reject each messenger. But it gets worse and worse and worse in treatment. And the owner decides to send the son. And what do they do to the son? They reject the son too. They re the one that they said they would never reject, they do reject. Because look at um, verse, verse 16. Jesus is talking the parable. And he's saying, this is what you're going to do to the son. You're going to reject the son. You're actually going to kill the son. But they, what do they say? They shout out in unison, may that never be. We would never do such a thing. We would never kill God's son. But not only, so they don't just reject the son, but they kill the son in verses 14 and 15. They say, here's the son coming. Let me have a bit of his inheritance by killing him. You know, it's, it's not even good logic, is it? You know, our mortgages or our rent or different bills. Imagine the bank sending the, bank, the, the branch manager out to say, look, we need you to pay your bill. And you punch them in the nose. Then they send the, the regional manager. And again, you just don't bother and you pick them up. And then the, 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 what comes next is the, the, the CEO, the, the director, the chief executive, the one you could say owns the bank. And you're like, you know what? When he comes, I'm going to kill him. Because if I kill him, I'll get all the money in the bank. It's warped logic, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying that they're doing. They're saying, this is the year, let's kill him. Let's get this son's inheritance. Why would the owner ever give the inheritance the people that killed the son? It would never be done, sure it wouldn't. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to kill God's son. You're going to kill me. A few days' time, that's exactly what will happen. Make sure we do not reject God's word, but make sure we do not 
reject Jesus, the Son. Because it's easy for us to say, isn't it? This isn't Jesus' day. The chief priests, the Roman guards, Pontius Pilate, I know, Judas, they all killed Jesus. They're the ones that drove the nails into Jesus' hand. They're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Rome, or anybody else, they killed Jesus. But no, we killed the Son. We killed Jesus. Yes, we weren't there. But we all killed Jesus. How? Why? How can that be true? How did we kill Jesus? Well, Jesus only ever had to come because we sinned. Jesus only ever had to come to earth because we are sinners, we are sinful people, and we then killed Jesus. We made his death necessary in the first place. It's not just a select group of religious leaders or unjust Roman officials that killed Jesus. Yes, they were there. Yes, they killed Jesus. But so did we. We killed Jesus. And why would the owner ever give the inheritance to the people who killed his son? He does, doesn't he? He does. How amazing is God's wonderful grace that Jesus, although he died on the cross, although we killed him, even through that, through his death, he would allow us to come to him and to trust in him, that we would receive him through faith. The peoples refuse him. They will kill him. Ultimately, that is all of us in our sin. And what happens if we do not repent in our sin? Our third point, very briefly, the people's removal. Verse 16, what will the owner do? The owner will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Just two, two, one wee side note. God's people, Israel, they had the message, they had the message, they had the message, they rejected it. So Jesus is pointing forward here too that we could have it. That it's not just Israel, but it's going to be for all peoples. So Jesus is pointing forward to that. But he's also saying, the owner's going to bring justice. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. All the people who constantly reject God's word, who reject Jesus, there's going to be justice and they will be punished. Every time God sends his servants, the tenants have an opportunity to respond and every time we hear God's word, we have an opportunity to respond. The, the tenants here have plenty of opportunities to listen and to do what they're told. But if they don't respond in the right way, if they reject and kill Jesus without remorse, without repentance, he will come and kill those tenants. And for those who reject Jesus and the gospel, he will punish. Jesus tells this story not because he hates the chief priests, Jesus tells the story not because he just wants them out of his sight. Jesus is telling the story because he loves them. He loves them. This is their last opportunity before they kill the son. And they can trust him. Some will after his death and resurrection. Many won't. And Jesus tells us about this punishment because he loves us. We're reminded of that enduring love Sunday by Sunday by Sunday because Jesus and God looks at the world and sees sin. He sees our hearts and our minds, minds that live and think, oh, I don't need to worry about my sin. I'm quite happy with my sin. It doesn't seem to do me any harm. I'm happy with it. I'm prospering in sin. I'm loving it, actually. And our hearts say, yes, please, I'll take sin all day long. Jesus, out of love, says, look what's going to happen to you if you reject me. 
Look at what will happen if you reject Jesus. Jesus tells us this out of love and mercy. Satan will want us to be blind to the future consequences of sin. Satan will say, other people will say, there's no final judgment, there's no end, just nothingness. That's what Satan wants you to hear. Satan doesn't want us to see the sure and certain judgment that is to come that Jesus is talking about. There are final consequences for rejecting Jesus. Jesus tells us that so we might see it coming and avoid it and repent from our sins and follow him. God will bring justice to those who do not trust in Jesus. With all that parable, the owner's patience, the people's refusal, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am crucial. Jesus is crucial. Jesus changes the, the, the picture from a vineyard to this cornerstone from Psalm 118. And well, we know in the New Testament uh, that that Psalm is talking about Jesus, that Jesus is the cornerstone. Paul and Peter will pick up on that. Um, that we are living stones being built around Christ, the chief cornerstone, for example. So it's all about Jesus. And, well, Jesus is so crucial. But why is Jesus crucial? Because he is the son that is killed. He is crucial. Although we killed him, it is crucial that he died because without him dying, we would have to face justice. We would have to face justice. But instead, Jesus, a few days later, is going to go on the cross. He's going to die. He's going to suffer the wrath of God for us who trust in him. He's going to be that atoning sacrifice for our sin. But we need to trust him. We need to accept him. Jesus is crucial because he will die and will pay the penalty of our sins. But Jesus is also crucial because he is that cornerstone that we thought about with the boys and girls. He is that cornerstone. He is that rock on which we can depend. He's the one that we are to stand on to utterly rely upon the, not the wise and foolish builder building their house upon the rock rather than the sand of idolatry and works. See, even if you're a Christian, it's hard for us, isn't it, to avoid temptation and not build our lives in Jesus, the cornerstone. We try maybe to, to balance our, our feet, as it were, on, on Jesus, the cornerstone, and dabble like a game of twister and put ourselves, our feet, in all these different things. That will, we will topple. We just stand in Jesus. The chief priests, what are they standing on when they're listening to this? They're standing on their good living, their goodness, their law abiding. They're obedient to God's law, they think. That's what they're standing on. But Jesus says, that is hopeless. Folks, don't stand on good works. Don't stand on your obedience. Don't stand on your, your good living or anything else. Because it's like a tennis ball. You're not going to stand. Do not build or make the cornerstone in our lives, our goodness, our good living, our general obedience. This cornerstone must be Jesus. The chief priest would reject this stone, Jesus, and cast him aside as utterly worthless and pointless. In the West of America, during the, the gold rush era, the state of Oregon had some gold mines, and they set up different camps and villages, and one of the villages was along a river, and they mined all the gold that they could find as they sifted through the river, but some people still stayed. And about 50 or 60 years later, this man built his house just overlooking the river, and uh, he, his front door kept blowing in the wind, okay? 
So he thought, I'll go down to the river. And he lifted a rock from the riverbed and put it on his front door as a doorstop. And then later on, weeks later, he moved the stone with his foot and it started to crack a little bit. See, what was a big lump of rock and stone, he thought, do you want to turn it? It turned out to be the biggest lump of gold ever found. People cast it aside as worthless. It looked ugly. It was oh so precious. That's what the chief priests are doing. They're rejecting the one that maybe looks ugly. Not the Messiah they anticipated, but he's oh so worthy and worshipful. They were to build their whole lives upon him. And the the rejection of Jesus that they're doing, the killing of the son is awful. The people are are aghast that they're going to kill the son too, but it's Jesus' rejection, his humiliation, that apparent tragedy that is oh so precious to us. Yes, we killed the son, but he forgives us. He offers us life. The parable is so clear. God in his patience, tells us to build our lives upon him. So look at verse 18. There's a picture in Isaiah chapter 8, similar to this too. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Fall over Jesus and turn to him. Don't be crushed by him. That's what the cornerstone is. The cornerstone we either build our lives upon or he will utterly crush us because of his justice. The stone the builders rejected, the stone people in this world reject, people in their ideologies, their liberal ideologies, people who think that you need to be good enough and that will get you to heaven, universalists who say you don't need Jesus, everyone's going to heaven, people who say there's going to be no justice, there's, no, there's nothing in the future, people who believe in the science... What are they doing? They're refusing Christ the cornerstone. They will be crushed. Do not be like the talent today and say, no, no, no. Build your life on Jesus and you will stand firm and secure because of his work on the cross for our sin. Let's pray before we sing to God's praise.